it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. But... <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well well that's the hallucination right that's like ai hallucination we have lives too <laughs> mother shipton's cave rich adam is coming jim harold is coming i'm doing a lot of laughing is it uh-huh. right astonishing legends would like to thank simply safe masterclass mint mobile our contributors at patreon.com and you our listeners for making tonight's show possible We have frequently referred to the now infamous December 2017 New York Times cover story, Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's Mysterious UFO Program. It led us to publish a two-part series in January of 2018 called Imminent Disclosure. At the time, the now widely familiar term UAP hadn't been prominently used for decades. When we called those episodes Imminent Disclosure, We knew well enough to put a question mark at the end because we weren't sure what would happen next, but we understood a front-page story in the New York Times felt like a paradigm shift. It's been over five and a half years since then, and a lot of astonishing UAP information has come out in that time. Within the U.S. government alone, several investigative units with various acronyms have been acknowledged, created, or rebranded multiple times. Different compartments seem to be attempting to unify their messaging around it all as more and more information comes to light nearly daily. This leads us to the impetus for tonight's episode. That 2017 New York Times article was written by Helene Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, and Leslie Kane. On June 5th, 2023, Kane and Blumenthal published another paradigm-shifting piece of journalism about a former intelligence official named Dave Grush. Grush is a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA, and the National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO. In his capacity with the NRO, he was a representative to the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, or UAPTF, from 2019 to 2021. And from late 2021 to July 2022, He was the NGA's co-lead for UAP analysis and their representative to the UAP task force. The article Kanan Blumenthal published this past June 5th was titled, Intelligence Officials Say U.S. Has Retrieved Craft of Non-Human Origin. This story was broken by a website called The Debrief, which can be found at thedebrief.org. The Debrief is an independent news site founded to promote rigorous reporting on frontier technology, future science, the world of defense, and knowledge on the periphery of human understanding. It also happens to have been co-founded by a close friend and colleague of ours, Micah Hanks. Thanks to Micah, we were able to get connected with Ralph Blumenthal about this latest article, and tonight you'll hear directly from Mr. Blumenthal about how it got published. 
After that, we'll sit down with Micah, the editor-in-chief at The Debrief, as well as Chrissy Newton, the head of media relations there, and a longtime podcaster herself for more discussion about the bigger picture. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. How do you ever know a source is telling the truth? You vet them and vet them and vet them and try to catch inconsistencies. We're convinced he's the real thing. Ralph Blumenthal on Dave Grush. Join us tonight for an in-depth look at the breaking story that the United States has retrieved craft of non-human origin. back that we are and more importantly you're back oh. on history's greatest mysteries <laughs> really i yeah. lost track at this point <laughs> i i think at this point i may have more airtime than mr lawrence fishburne i think that's plausible uh, folks forrest has become kind of a regular on history's greatest oh, mysteries stop. and you can catch him again on a topic we covered ourselves just this past january of 2023 the nazca lines oh yeah that was a good one it's a good episode uh, yeah folks so look for me on history's greatest mysteries again on june 26th 2023 in season four Episode 19, which is all about the Nazca lines, and you're going to see some images with that as well, which you don't get with us. Uh, yes, very exciting. I got mm -hmm. a couple of other quick points of news tonight before we dive in. Firstly, Small Town Monsters has made it official. Uh. Monster Fest 2 is happening next year, and we're definitely going to try and make it and bring more bail money. So if you missed that this year, <laughs> now you have a whole year to figure it out. Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to have been recovered by then even. Uh, <laughs> but, but the info is early at this point, and they're looking at June 29th. 2024. So mark your calendars, folks, and keep your eyes on smalltownmonsters.com. They've already got a webpage for it up. In other news, we're taking a break for the 4th of July, so our next show won't be until July 22nd. If you can't stand to be without us for that long, head over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, because we'll still be doing a couple of our live on video shows there, The Astonishing Junk Drawer. All right, man, let's get into this. So we've set this up pretty well. Longtime listeners will know our history on this angle of the UAP topic, but, but you don't need that backstory to absorb the weight of this latest story about the United States allegedly capturing and even reverse engineering craft of non-human origin for some time now, decades. Yeah, I can't think of a larger story with more impact for the human race uh, at this moment, but we have a link to the original story we're referring to tonight which can be found at thedebrief.org. So go there to read it, folks. And that's the best place to start, frankly, because it's now been picked up by every other major mainstream media outlet there is. And Dave Grush, who's at the center of it, has done a lot of additional interviews. But the story we're talking about tonight is the first one, the original, the breaking one that the debrief shared before any other source. And that's the one that was written by Leslie Kane and Ralph mm -hmm. Blumenthal and vetted thoroughly by them. They are not vouching for additional details and stories that came out later with Mr. Grush, just the one that they personally worked on. As we said in the cold open, Leslie and Ralph were two of the original journalists on the 2017 New York Times cover story, along with Helene Cooper, the Pentagon correspondent for The Times. Scott, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background on our first guest tonight, Mr. Ralph Blumenthal? 
Well, Ralph Blumenthal wrote for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009, over 40 years. He's written seven books based on investigative crime reporting and cultural history, including mm-hmm. a biographical book on Pulitzer Prize winning Harvard psychiatrist John E. Mack, mm-hmm. the premier investigator of human abductions by aliens. Mr. Blumenthal himself is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist as a result of work he did leading the New York Times Metro team that covered the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. His career is replete with accomplishments and legendary coverage of everything, including Nazi war criminals hiding in America. He was the reporter who first got the tip of the former Secretary General of the UN, Kurt Waldheim's secret Nazi past. Yeah, so he's the real deal. Yeah, he's the real deal, and we are honored to have him with us tonight. And stick around after our chat with him to hear from Micah Hanks and Chrissy Newton from The Debrief about how this story was broken and additionally covered after The Debrief published it. Okay, Sarah, please roll our discussion with Ralph Blumenthal. All right, so we are honored to be sitting down with uh, journalist Ralph Blumenthal, formerly of the New York Times and still writing uh, frequently now, including with the other journalists that a lot of our listeners will have heard of, Leslie Kane. You guys seem to work together a lot. Welcome to Astonishing Legends, Ralph. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. One of our good friends is the reason that we were able to get in touch with you, which is Micah Hanks, who was obviously uh, part of the debrief. We know that you've already talked to our friend Jim Harold. We actually, this past weekend, were with Micah all weekend at a festival in Ohio, and he didn't say one word about this story that was about to come out. <laughs> yeah, we, we swore him to secrecy. <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, uh, he kept it secret, believe me. Um, so there's a lot of questions to ask about this, but you've already appeared in a lot of places, and we're going to direct our listeners to other locations where you've done interviews if they want some of the more basic questions. There's a few broad ones we'd like to ask and some deeper ones, but we want to talk to you also about your background in general and and what led you here. I mean, you worked on the team that got a Pulitzer Prize for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing story, right? Yeah, my whole background at the New York Times, I spent 45 years on the staff there, really has been investigative reporting, reporting on law enforcement, later reporting on the arts. So I had a varied background and I, I never did report on UFOs. It was just not in my wheelhouse But as it happened uh, in 2004, when I was a correspondent in Texas, I ran across a book by John Mack, and that got me interested in John Mack. I ended up doing a a biography of of John Mack, which came out in 2021. Mm -hmm. So that's what got me interested in the subject. But my Times reporting until 2017, when I teamed up with Leslie on the big breaking story about ATIP, really, I was not reporting on that at all. Was that your first time working with Leslie, or had you worked with her prior? I had not worked with her prior. I got to know her through my research on John Mack because, you know, she was the companion of Bud Hopkins. And Bud Hopkins Mm -hmm. was the one who introduced John Mack to the whole abduction phenomenon. So I had gotten to know Leslie uh, in that respect. But the uh, Times article in 2017 was the first time we'd worked together. Yeah. And that article, I mean, that was earth shattering for the UFO community. And to be clear, uh, on our show, we talk about all kinds of things. UFO is a component of it. There's other folks that are absolutely dedicated to it. But we still, when that article came out, we did a special episode of the show. We, we, We titled it Imminent Disclosure, question mark. And we talked about it. I have a copy of it here. And uh, my friend Ryan Sprague, he took the other one that I bought for my co-host. He took it from us because he wanted it so bad. He couldn't find one anywhere. But um, what about the path on that story, that front time, uh, that front page story? How, when, when you guys were sussing that out and presenting it to the Times, what was that process like for the editorial board of the Times in that? 
Yeah, well, that was interesting. I mean, I had been a staff reporter for the Times until 2009. And then I left the staff. I basically retired from full-time work at the Times. I still continued to contribute to the paper and freelance and teach and do other things. I work on my John Mack book. So Leslie came to me one day in 2017, and she told me uh, she'd been to this amazing meeting in Washington uh, with intelligence people and had heard that the Pentagon had a secret unit to investigate UFOs, uh, UAP, as they came to call it, and that Lou Elizondo, the head of it, had just submitted a letter of resignation because he hadn't gotten sufficient support inside the Pentagon. So there was an element of intrigue uh, there. But the fact that the Pentagon was uh, investigating UFOs was, was something new. I mean, supposedly they were, they were out of the UFO business with Blue Book at the end of 1969. They said there was nothing to see here, you know? Right. They left 701 cases on the table, but they said <laughs> there was nothing to it. But of course there was, and Leslie found out that there'd been this unit set up, which we called ATIP. It came under, it was started under OSIP about 2007 with $22 million from Harry Reid, black money, secret, and she found out about it. So we came to the Times to answer your question more directly. I approached uh, the editors and said, we have this sensational story about a secret you know, arm of the, uh, of the Pentagon. I didn't go into a lot of details because I wanted to know first whether it was something that would generally interest them, and it was. And we had very little trouble getting that story into the paper. I mean, it was carefully vetted, and, but we had all the documentation. You know, I want to emphasize that because like this story later that we, we just did, uh, it was all on the record. There were no background source. There were no, you know, unnamed sources, no intrigue. Uh, we had the documents. We had the pictures of the people involved. So that's the way we like to report. There's too much, you know, in this business in this field of, you know, undercover, under not named background sources. And we think that's detrimental. So anyway, right. once we came to the Times with all that information, it was easy getting it into the paper. I mean, they did a lot of due diligence themselves and, you know, checked us and wanted to see our, our information. But the story got in easily on page one and uh, with Helene Cooper, I should say, Leslie yes. and I and, and the, the Times Pentagon correspondent worked together. She had very good sources, Helene. Yeah, we were very happy with, with how that worked out. Was there at any point during that process that you were mistreated or laughed at or any behind the back or jokes or, you know, yeah. we walked in? And, yeah, yeah, that's what I wonder what, the, what yeah. that was really like. Uh, yeah. Helene in particular, because she worked in the Washington Bureau, she was the Pentagon correspondent, and she told us that colleagues would, you know, would hum things when she walked by. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And the yeah. X-Files theme, I, I imagine. Yeah, they made fun of her. But you know what she told us? When she put up the videos that we got showing encounters between the Navy pilots and these objects, videos that we released with our, with our big story, she said everybody clustered around her desk and they were like speechless right. because these videos yeah. really are breathtaking. Yeah. And I mean, you can hear the voices, you know, they, I mean, they, they've been everywhere since then. They've been picked up widely, but you hear the voices of the Navy personnel just, you know, gasping at these right. videos of the objects, skipping over the water and spinning in space and all that. So when she put those up on her computer, uh, everybody gathered around and, oh my God, oh my God. So, but we got some jokes too. Right. What's the general reaction now from your colleagues? It's hard to tell because there's some pushback. I mean, you know, there, there's some skepticism out there. There, there. You know, this field is uh, very competitive. You know, we're taking some shots from people who say, well, he didn't bring any 
physical hardware, you know, to the table and he didn't put his hands on a UFO himself and things like that. So, you know, we're prepared to deal with that. We know uh, we, we portrayed him. This is Dave Grush, the um, former intelligence official who came forward. So we, we believe we properly characterized his level of information, his bona fides. He didn't claim to do more than he, he said he did. You know, generally, we've gotten a, a very supportive reaction, I'd say, judging from the, you know, the Twitter feeds we've seen. And a lot of people in the UFO field are glad this is coming out. Uh, they think we've moved the needle, uh, advanced things. So I'd say generally the reaction has been very positive. For people that don't understand, which is, I think, a lot of the world, ourselves included, because we're, you know, we're armchair investigators with no training whatsoever. In terms of what goes into vetting somebody like Grush, what is that like for you guys as you're doing this story? How can people understand how sure you are of the information you present as it relates to him? Well, I mean, the first thing is that, uh, you know, you don't take anything anyone, any source says to you on its face value. You look for corroboration. So the first thing we did is we checked him out and we found out that, first of all, he was willing to come out under his own name, which is very important. So he wasn't hiding who he was. And he had a very distinguished uh, military record, which he showed us. I mean, he was a decorated officer in Afghanistan. Uh, he served with the National Geospatial Agency. He served with the National Reconnaissance Office. He was the uh, representative to the uh, UAP task force all of which he documented. He also you know, testified to Congress, and we didn't just take his word for that. We had paperwork backing it up. Now, he testified to Congress under classified terms, but some of that documentation was unclassified. So, I mean, he produced hundreds of pages of classified testimony, which we did not have access to, but we did have access to various unclassified paperwork confirming that he had testified to Congress. And by the way, that he had filed a whistleblower complaint under the whistleblower provisions of the National Defense Act of 2023, signed by Biden uh, in December last year. And he came under that and he filed a whistleblower complaint claiming that he had been retaliated against illegally for coming forward with this information. So we had that complaint. His lawyer, by the way, is a former inspector general of the intelligence community, which is the, you know, the highest inspector general job sort of investigating the inner workings of the intelligence community. And we had confirmatory comments from other people on the record who knew him, uh, an army colonel who worked on the UAP task force, a guy named Nell. We had Jonathan Gray, who uh, was a high, is, remains a high official in NASIC, the National Air and Space Intelligence Agency. Chris Mellon, who uh, was a former undersecretary of defense. And again, all these people are on the record in giving their names and positions. So that's how we basically vetted him. We got other people to talk about him on the record. We knew who they were. We knew who he was from his performance records. Uh, we talked to him many times, checking his information. But you asked a good question. How do you ever know a source is telling the truth? You vet them and vet them and try to catch you know, inconsistencies. Now we're convinced he's the real thing. So when he testified to Congress, did he testify at all of Congress or to a committee? Good question. Um, we don't know too much about that, but I think he testified to both. He testified to the intelligence committees in both houses uh -huh. and to uh, members of Congress. Now, okay. 
members of Congress can't even talk about that because right. they, they're not allowed to talk about whistleblowers to protect the identity of the whistleblowers. So we are not able to talk to members of Congress and ask them, well, what do you think of his testimony or so? So that that's difficult. They're under wraps there. I remember when that bill was passed, what exactly does the whistleblower protection provide for Mr. Grush? It provides that anyone with knowledge, inside knowledge of a UAP matter involving, you know, UFOs, UAP, can come forward with that information to certain channels in Congress and, uh, and the executive branch. Uh, it doesn't mean they, they can you know, go talk to the media and say whatever they want. It means that there's a pathway for them to disclose this information to relevant parties in the government without any retaliation. Right. That's very clear. And he claims in this filing that he was retaliated against. He suffered reprisals. We don't go into a lot of detail on that because it's not safe for him to talk too much about that. But um, he was threatened. He had some of his clearances revoked. He suffered some you know, personal attacks at home and not physical necessarily, but uh, other kinds of reprisals. Very uncomfortable for him and illegal illegal under the statute. And we had that documentation because parts of the, the complaint that we got were unclassified. So we were allowed to talk about that. By the way, I should say also that before he talked to us on the record, he went to the Pentagon's Office of Pre-Publication Clearance and Review and said, I want to tell these reporters this, this, and this. Does it violate any you know, national security guidelines? Am I talking about anything classified here? And he told them, what he was going to tell us. And they cleared it. They said, no, this doesn't violate any national security guidelines. And um, you're free to, to say that. Now, they didn't say you're telling the truth. They didn't offer their own opinion of whether it was a good idea or not a good idea or, or what. All they said was you are free as a citizen to tell this to whoever you want, the reporters who asked you. So sure. we had that. And we, we think that strengthened our eventual story in the debrief, because it showed that the government was aware of what he intended to say and did not object. Do you think that some of this harassment that he's been facing is coming from high-level officials who may themselves be looking at jail time? That's a good question. We don't know where it's coming from, uh, just by the nature of it. But we do know that inside the government, there the government doesn't speak with one voice on this issue. There are different pockets uh, resistant to more disclosure. Lou Elizondo faced this when he was, you know, the head of ATIP. He talked about how he was thwarted and blocked and had up to the point where he had to resign because he felt he couldn't do his job. There are some strange pockets inside the Pentagon and the government that exert some power when it comes to, to this issue. But it's very shadowy and we don't know very much about it. Well, and that brings me to a question. It, you have to forgive me. It's a slightly fringy question. We're, we're trying to stay more or less on topic with you about that kind of thing. But um, are you familiar with the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon? Very much so. We've had George Knapp on our show in the past. So that book for our listeners by uh, Knapp and Colm Kelleher and James T. Lukatsky, they talk about uh, particular, I guess, factions or groups of people inside the Pentagon that seem to push back on this kind of thing out of religious beliefs connected to demonology and other things that like high level officials that are stopping things on those grounds. I would have never thought to ask you about that, but you seem to allude to that in your talk with our uh, colleague, Jim Harold. Do you know anything more about that kind of pushback happening? Well, I know uh, it concerned Lou 
uh, Alessandro, uh, when, you know, he complained about the way he was thwarted. I just have heard the stories that I guess you're alluding to, that there are people in the government who are opposed to the research into UFOs as demonic. Uh, they have a certain clout and uh, they could be part of it. I just, I don't know really enough and uh, I wouldn't know enough about who's behind these things and where this may may come from. But that characterization of some of this opposition as fundamentalist or so has come up before. Do you get the feeling that this is a large group of people or a small group of high-powered people? I would say small, yeah. um, because this whole thing is, is compartmented. I mean, right. the knowledge of these programs is very small, and it's stovepiped so that there are just individual channels that have knowledge of these operations. And it's not something widely known in, in, in the government. So as a matter of fact, it's perfectly understandable that certain officials say, I have no knowledge of this, or this agency, as the Pentagon recently put out, said Arrow has no knowledge of these recovery operations of uh, UAP. So you have to read these statements very carefully, because what they're saying is that this particular agency wasn't doing that or didn't know that. But that doesn't mean that nobody there knows about it. It's very carefully concealed through very many layers Compartmentalization. and classified operations. It's really a core secret of the government. It's very, very well protected. And it's not only in the government, it's in you know private contractors' hands in some cases. And they are not amenable to FOIA requests, which is the reason some of this program has been handed off to them. So you can't even file a FOIA request like you can with an agency of the U.S. government to say it's my right as a journalist and a citizen to have this information. Then there's a body that looks into it and, you know, has to check it out and report back. That doesn't exist with private industry. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult business. I'm Heather Olson, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. This presupposes, I guess, that this core group, as you say, somebody or group of people has to be behind this, and it has to be, at this point, generational. Is at the core of this, is this military, or is there a political faction? Because, of course, with politics and politicians, they should be elected officials. They rotate in and out. What do you think is, and this is probably speculation on your I don't point. think it's political. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, it's much too advanced for me. It's much too classified um, to penetrate. But these are secrets, when you think of it, that have been protected yeah. uh, since the atomic age, you know, since World War II and before. Somebody, some group of people in the government through multiple generations are protecting these secrets. But I, I, I reiterate, these are, are uh, protected through impenetrable layers of secrecy, because otherwise they it would have come out before. And I don't need to add that over the years, the government has put out disinformation. Not only has it withheld information, but it's put out disinformation that has thrown people off the track and altered documents that have emerged. So you don't even know when you're looking at a document, whether it's an authentic document or not. And they have stigmatized the entire field that people who report these things are mentally uh, unbalanced or have a a motive. I mean, this field has been so overlaid with disinformation, misinformation, uh, stigma. I mean, it's a wonder that we've arrived at the level of knowledge that we have today, which is still very minimal, but it's amazing how this has been protected over the years. 
Well, and, the, and to your point on that, you have said in other interviews, and I think maybe our listeners should hear it from you, how, what do you think of conspiracy theories and conspiracies and the idea that you're being manipulated or, or Grush is being manipulated and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, you hear that a lot, I think, by people who don't really know. But I can tell you from 45 years at the New York Times that I do not believe that secrets are conspiratorially leaked out or manipulated to the point where everybody has agreed on this story in advance to put it in more immediate terms, that we were spoon-fed this information, you know, for a particular outcome. I know how these stories that we have done emerged. They weren't spoon-fed to us or handed to us. We had to dig them out, you know, through a lot of hard work and different sources, and people went back and forth. I mean, it was very difficult. There was nothing to suggest that this was any kind of coordinated effort. And I know that's one of the conspiracy theories out there, that this is, you know, part of some masterminded disclosure program. I just don't believe it. I know how these stories emerged and they were not pre-programmed in any way that we could identify. We dug the information out and through some missteps and you know all kinds of things. So I don't subscribe to this conspiracy thing at all. Those two terms you put out there, misinformation and disinformation get bandied about a lot. And I don't think people really, they just labeled uh, it as a very broad label. Can you give us an example of something that you've come across that you really believe is purposeful misdirection, subterfuge, misinformation? I can. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail, but at one point, Leslie and I came up with a document that seemed to be a very dramatic government UFO document. And we checked it out through a lot of sources. It had all the right markings, you know, it, was, it seemed very authentic. And then uh, we heard from a very well-placed source that there was some wrong information deliberately put into the document, perhaps in order to throw adversaries off the track or to mislead somebody, maybe journalists. And it completely tainted the document because part of it was real. It was an original document, but it had been changed in certain ways that rendered it less than, than perfect and usable. It injected an element of doubt. So that's, that really is part of the problem that you, you, know, you can dig through the files and find what looks like a sensational document showing that in 1952, whatever, the government came across this, this, and this. And then when you dig deeper, you find, well, the document seems to be authentic from that period. It has all the right markings, but there's certain information there that might have been inserted later as counterintelligence, or um, it's a hall of mirrors. Would that be something like the uh, the Majestic 12 memorandum? It would be something like that. <laughs> I had uh, read an article earlier today as we were trying to do some research before talking to you. It was written by somebody named Michael Schellenberger. I read it on Substack, and one of the things that he had said in his article that I thought was interesting was that AARO operates under Title 10 authority, whereas the parts of the, of the government that are protecting this information or Title 50, and that it's a much higher level of security. And Title 50 essentially kind of looks down on and stonewalls any Title 10 situation. So that that's one of the reasons that the information doesn't change hands, AARO being Title 10, which I would looked up and says, of the United States Code outlines the role of armed forces, provides the legal basis for the roles, missions, and organization of each of the services, as well as the Department of Defense. Whereas Title 50 says... This outlines the role of war and national defense in the U.S. Code. So you could see where, if that's where this information is, most of this stuff that you uh, and Leslie and Helene were onto, that stuff, if that's all Title 50, you could see where Sean Kirkpatrick would go and sit down and say, hey, you know, we have no knowledge of this, but, and, and right. maybe not even be aware that he's being stonewalled. 
Well, that's right. We actually heard that uh, some um, official witnesses before Congress took pains not to be briefed on information beforehand. You would think that if someone's going to be a witness to Congress, that they would seek all kinds of information to be well prepared. If you were going to be deposed, let's say, in a case, you would want to know as much about it as possible to answer all the questions what lawyers might throw at you. Well, there's a counter argument that you don't want to know that stuff because you don't want to have to lie about it if you're asked about it. So the, the less you know about something, the better off you are as a witness under that kind of you know, logic and thinking. So it's possible that some of these witnesses who testified, you know, I'm not saying Kirkpatrick necessarily, but right. people like him didn't necessarily want to have a possession of all the secrets possible before they testified. So they could say, I don't have, I don't know that. That's, uh, you know, I never heard that and, and not lie. So right. uh, yeah. that's another issue. And plausible right. deniability. Yeah. yeah. Plausible deniability. Wow, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, of course, because you're sitting down in front of Congress. You want know, to say something, you know, this comes out later, and then you're the person that lied to Congress. The other question, this is one I didn't want to ask you a lot of questions that you've been asked by other folks, uh, but this one I do want to just hear for our listeners. Why did this story break on the debrief and not in the Times or the Washington Post? Yeah, here are the facts. I mean, um, having written for the Times for so long and having broken the big story in 2017, and subsequent stories, by the way, after the December 2017 story on ATIP, we ran, wrote, and and published a number of other stories in the Times about close near misses, and one story uh, even about uh, retrieved objects. That information was given to congressional staff. Actually, we found uh, about uh, retrievals that mentioned off-Earth vehicles. So we've written for the Times, you know, quite a bit. So when we first gathered uh, information about David Grush and his uh, information. I went to the Times and talked about it. It was a very early stage. It was back in April. We didn't have everything we subsequently got. And they passed on it at that point. I mean, they, they take a lot of stories. They pass on a lot of stories. They make decisions all the time. And so I know how the process works. So they weren't prepared to take that story then. So we, Leslie and I talked about it. We ended up at some point at the Washington Post. They were very interested in the story. We were pursuing it with them. They like the story. We, we've done some work together on the story with them, but it was stretching out quite a bit. They have a difficult, they, all these mainstream organizations like the Times, which I know I worked uh, for so long, they have a whole process there. Different editors have to discuss things. The people we were talking to were pulled off on other stories. It's a big organization, a lot going on. So it was taking a while. And then David Grush's name was leaked on the internet for the first time. And that put him at some peril. Uh, he was getting harassing phone calls. Other sources were, were similarly threatened. I mean, not physically threatened, but were under risk, let's say. The story was spinning out of control. You can't control a, a big story like this for, for too long. Too many people were, were whispering about it, was showing up on the internet, leaks. So we had to do something quickly, more quickly. And we couldn't wait to go through all the, the processes. So Leslie and I had both published on the debrief before. They're very expert there. They specialize in defense and intelligence matters. They have their own team of, of fact checkers and experts who went over our story. It wasn't like, you know, they just took it and, and ran it. Uh, we went through a process there, but it was an accelerated process, which which they could do as a smaller operation. Right. So that's the story. That's how it came out fast. We talked to other people, in, you know, in the course of, of trying to find a home for the story, but we decided that the debrief was a good spot for it and that they basically 
the best thing was they could move fast and get the story in before our sources were more exposed and more damaging leaks would, would dribble out. The long and short of it is ultimately it's a lot of it is about protecting Mr. Grush from a lot uh, of it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, journalists know that the best way you can protect a, a source, especially a source at risk, is to put his or her information out there, because right. once it's published, uh, that person has the kind of protection of being in the public eye until it's published. They're very vulnerable. And that's what was happening with Dave Grush. He was getting calls that were upsetting him and his family. And we figured, well, let's get this information out there. Let uh, everyone know that uh, he has the protection now of of coming out publicly. So right. anyone who would want to mess with him uh, would have to realize that this is going to be part of the story. So right. that really was the thinking. We wanted to talk to you about your books, a couple of your more recent ones, your most recent one, which you mentioned right before we went on the air, and also the book Believer. You talked about John Mack, and that's what kind of led you into this field. Tell our listeners a little bit about who John Mack was. Yeah, so this is how I got into the subject. I mean, in uh, John Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist, a very esteemed member of the Harvard Medical School faculty, who uh, was a child of privilege. He grew up in a pretty wealthy household and was very well grounded in psychiatry, not interested in paranormal things at all. Uh, he was very interested in social causes. He was uh, very progressive in his political opinions. And he got interested in various breathing techniques, for example, holotropic breathing, which was a relaxation technique. And he became aware through that of dimensions in consciousness that he wasn't aware of, that the body can really go through some interesting changes and it challenged his conventional thinking. And uh, through one of these holotropic breathing sessions, he met a woman who, who knew um, Bud Hopkins, who was this uh, artist who was a researcher in alien abduction stories. And through a series of events I, I discuss in my book, John Mack met Bud Hopkins and immediately thought it was nonsense. He couldn't imagine that people could be, you know, meeting alien beings and having experiences and all that. But he looked at the letters that Bud Hopkins had received and investigated it on his own, John Mack did, and met some of these people. And he found, to his astonishment, that these were perfectly normal people from all walks of life, young, old, men, women, professionals, blue collar, intellectuals, police officers, across the gamut, who had these unexplainable experiences, seeing a, a UFO and then feeling that they were uh, encountering alien beings and being beamed into their spacecraft and all these things, and told these experiences in a way that John Mack, a psychiatrist, took to be authentic. I mean, he, he specializes in understanding people's mental processes. And if someone is, is lying to him or fabricating a story or, you know, or telling a tale, as he said later, he, he would detect that. But these people were crying and screaming and, I mean, reliving these terrible experiences, as they said. So anyway, he became what I call with quote marks, a believer. Right. Which is the name of the book. The name of the book, The Believer. Yeah. And what I say at the end is that doesn't mean he was gullible. It means that he believed in bettering human society and investigating difficult areas. And it's an interesting concept, what he what he really believed in, not just uh, that he believed in mythology. Anyway, he ended his life, unfortunately, run down in London by a drunk driver. Oh. And at a time when he was expanding his research into other paranormal areas like uh, life after death, survival of consciousness, 
crop circles. He got interested in a lot of things because he realized that uh, UFOs weren't the only mystery around, that there are a lot of things that are very mysterious, ghost stories, the Holy Grail legend. I mean, he he really became uh, very uh, diverse in his interests. So that was the story. I I came across his, um, he wrote two best-selling books on this, and I came across one of those books when I was a New York Times correspondent in Texas, and I wanted to follow up, and then I found out he'd been run over and killed right right when I was going to try to interview him. So that's what got me started. Uh, you know, I, I got access to his papers. He he kept great journals. He kept tapes of all his sessions, uh, his own therapy, because psychiatrists have to go through their own analysis. Uh, so I had a real window into his development, and I found him to be a very credible, again, a very like Dave Grush, a very credible uh, source of information who was confronted with a mystery. Uh, and he never penetrated that mystery, by the way, nor has anyone right. figured out what this is all about. But he was intrigued by it. And I, I found that, you know, enthralling. So that's how that book came to be. Before you crossed paths with uh, Max Legacy and the work that you started doing on that, you were not necessarily a believer yourself in these kinds of things. I was not. You know, John Mack said he had never encountered a UFO, and neither did I. So, I, you know, I didn't come out of that world. It was not one of the things that interested me. I, I read science fiction as a kid, but, you know, everybody did after, you know, when I grew up at that period of post-war, you know, life, uh, it was very popular. But I wouldn't say that was any of my interest. I was a New York Times reporter. I did investigative reporting on criminal justice and Nazi war criminals, the first World Trade Center attack, you know, all kinds of things that were uh, very firmly grounded on planet Earth. So I didn't spend much time thinking about, you know, UFOs. You know, we had only just recently been set up to cross paths with you, thanks to uh, uh, mutual contact Micah Hanks. But I got your book and started it a few days ago. I confess I'm only about 30% into it, but I'm loving it. I can't wait to finish it. I love the references to Charles Fort, uh, the other information there. The funny thing is, you know, we've been doing our podcast for almost eight and a half years now, and we've covered all gamut of things. We've got 200 and you'll be in our 261st episode, actually. Wow. And a lot of times when you get into a book and you're talking about different 14 things or things that might have fascinated Mac, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, we know this. I know this. I know this. There was one in yours, though, about the Captain Wilson and the airship, the whole story where this airship was seen yeah. over and over. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. I thought that was amazing. Just when you think you've heard everything in the UFO business, you come across a story that blows everything out of the water because it's so, I mean, this is what Whitley Strieber talks about all the time, that this field is so replete with wild stories. And what you're referring to are the the sightings of aircraft before aircraft were invented. Right. (laughs) So, uh, you know, go figure. I mean, the the, uh, heavier than air flight started with the Wright brothers in 1903. But back in the 1890s, people were talking about airships uh, landing and strange creatures coming out and asking for water. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's a through line and a, a motif that we come across a lot in this and in trying to figure out what's going on and that it seems some aspect of this is that the sightings and the craft and and whatever was retrieved kind of matches the era of human experience during that time. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah. I mean, people describe these things in terms sort of related to the era. I mean, in the Bible, they talk about a fiery chariot in the sky because that's what people related to. They right. didn't talk about, you know, oval tic-tacs, you know, in the Bible. <laughs> right, right. 
so uh, people reference it in terms of their own frame of reference, what they what they used to. So that is interesting. But it's throughout history, as Jacques Vallée has pointed out, that these uh, encounters go back through uh, to ancient times, and and they're in annals of various literatures. You know, the Indian subcontinent, Native Americans, uh, all over, and and the phenomenon is is all over. It's not. People say, well, why is this just happening in America? It's not just happening in America. Uh, it's all over the world. We might have the most aggressive media that write it up. But if you look at the newspapers of the time in countries around the world, there are these stories going around. And again, I want to emphasize, these are mysteries. We don't know the answer. Oh, by the way, I, you know, you mentioned my last book. I, I should say that the very last book I did with my wife, which is a nonfiction children's book, picture book yeah. on UFOs, strictly factual, just on the UFO phenomenon, you know, illustrated by a very good artist. That's the last book I did. And it, it's a children's book because we want to uh, let families know that this is a subject that they can talk about factually without fan, you know, without sensationalism, without speculation, no aliens. Uh, we don't know about that. It's just objects that have been seen recorded by the Navy. No one knows what they are, why they're here, except that they, they do seem to physically exist. Damn. And and that one is called UFOs with O H S. UFO. Okay. I mean, we love UFOs. the title. It's uh, but I and I <laughs> think right. it's talking for myself is uh, it's something I think that is very important because one, this could be a reality that our, the present children will have to deal with and w- will be part of their world perhaps uh, and Absolutely. and inform everything they know about the world and and in relation to that I think do you think it is meant to erase some fear or put some fears at rest at that, you know, here's a reality. You're going to have to deal with it. And the less you afraid you are of it, the better we will be equipped to talk about this and right. deal with it going forward. Yeah, we're hoping that it gives a, a grounding for families to talk about this. Right. Also, you know, kids see a lot of stuff on TV mm-hmm. and they hear stuff talked about and they get misconceptions, especially in cartoons and things like that. And, and there's still a lot of ridicule around the subject. They make fun of it all the time. So kids do not have a factual basis, really, for understanding this. And, and parents don't either. Families who are not exposed to this subject may be uncomfortable with it. Children asking questions, they don't know how to answer these questions. I mean, nobody knows yeah. how to approach this subject. So we thought we would offer a very basic uh, narrative line. I mean, we tell the story about two boys who, real, a real case, actually, which grew out of my my John Mack book, two boys who saw a, um, a UFO from a tennis court in Florida years ago, and uh, they didn't know what to make of it. And adults playing tennis next to them, they didn't know what to make of it, but they all saw the same thing. Right. So that's how we start the book. But we hope to give families and children some factual basis for uh, dealing with this subject, just to give them a, an entry point right. to talk about it that's not frightening and that's not sensational. Speaking of the adults, supposedly, uh, that fear is really hampering a lot of this and muddying the waters and just a negative um, aspect of this this search here. And that fear is keeping uh, you know a lot of this under wraps or it's just not the healthiest way to deal with this. Well, fear is definitely a, a factor here, and probably properly so, because this is a very frightening phenomenon in, in many ways. It doesn't fit into the normal framework of reality. 
that we understand. So that's one of the, obviously, the troubling aspects of this is that no one knows how to deal with it. People are afraid even to discuss it among themselves or with their family members for fear of being, you know, called mentally unbalanced or being ridiculed. No one knows what they've really seen afterwards. And, you know, another part of this is interesting is why do some people have this experience and other people don't? Right. That's part of the mystery. People can be standing next to each other. One will will see something and another won't. Or one will be sleeping, fast asleep, not even being able to be awoken, awakened, let's say, and the other has some kind of a you know, out of body experience. That's another troubling aspect of this. So fear is definitely part of this phenomenon, and no one knows how to how to deal with that. Have you and or Leslie been experiencing any strange things since this story has posted or it's all just been pretty normal run of the mill backlash? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, We, you know, I must say we we, we try to be careful in terms of our communications because reporters today have learned to communicate on secure communication, you know, lines and things like that. So we we take that seriously. But uh, I I can't say, you know, John Mack used to joke that whenever he he talked, the lights would go out or the the, the slide projector would malfunction. Uh (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that happens anyway, whenever you try to use technology. So as you guys know. Sure. Where do you think this story right now, where do you think it's headed next? Well, it, it looks like there's going to be some congressional hearings. That seems to be the latest uh, development. Maybe more will develop uh, in the next few weeks before, you know, you go onto the air. But that's something to keep a watch on. I think basically Dave Grush threw down the gauntlet to Congress and said, and he told us this is in our story. He said to Congress, "You've been lied to. You've had information illegally withheld from you that you're entitled to." And maybe that is emboldening some members of Congress to actually ask for that information, demand the information, and at least call him in as a witness to say, you know, tell us what what you told, you know, other members of Congress and committees in the past. But we want to hear from you what what you think has been withheld from us, because Congress is the the people's representatives. I mean, that they, they decide on how our money is spent. They are the real guardians of our of our liberty and our money and our pocketbooks. So they have the right to know this stuff, and it's in the Constitution. And that's what Grush said, that they were denied this basic information. So perhaps this will give them a basis now to exercise their their authority to demand these answers. And, you know, it's been said that, well, he didn't come forward with any concrete information. You know, it was all hearsay. Well, let Congress get that next level of, of authentication. Right. They have the clearance, right? So they have they can, the clearance, yeah. not committees, by the way. Mm-hmm. When, when, when Dave Grush talked to certain congressional committees, he said, I can't tell you this information. You're not cleared for this. Right, right, right. When he talked to staff, I should say congressional staff, not actual members of Congress. But the staff are the ones who do the preliminary work. So, you know, all the committees don't, you know, investigate everything themselves. First, they farm it out to their staff. And Grush said to some staff members, you you don't have this clearance. I can't tell you this stuff. So now it's up to Congress themselves, members who do have the clearance to get this information from him. And if if he says he doesn't have the the direct uh, knowledge or the direct evidence, but he says he knows who does. Right. So Congress can go to them and say, okay. Tell us who does. We'll get it from them. Mm -hmm. So they have the information and the tools to pursue this. 
if they want to, as Chris Mellon said, but they have to make that decision that this is something that they want to do, that this is a Pandora's box that they want to open, which they should, in my opinion. So it's in their court. If you think uh, this statement makes sense, it would seem to me that uh, if it's off-world or alien technology, then we don't own it. It's not our state or national security secrets. But somehow the information that they've been able to glean from this has then become U.S. national security, military intelligence and, and secrets, and that's what they want to control. Yeah, and properly so. I mean, we have no quarrel with that. I think that the, Leslie and I are certainly not saying that everything should be in the public domain. There are, it seems to me, just speaking personally, that there are security considerations in some of this information, this technology. We want to prevent our adversaries certainly from getting it. So that's legitimate. But just to say that there are these craft that's not necessarily giving away any big secrets. First of all, the Russians know that. Right, they, right. They're, they're yeah, pursuing right. the same research that, that we are. They may be ahead of us. Uh, who knows? Chinese, I don't know. So uh, there's a legitimate national security aspect to this. Mm. And no one is saying, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that uh, everything should be thrown open sure. and uh, everything disclosed. So that's not the point. The point is that there's a certain amount of information here that, that properly belongs to humanity. And certainly... The people of the world should not be lied to and told that they're they're crazy if they report these things. Absolutely. Well, you have been very generous with your time, Ralph. We really appreciate your coming on the show with us. Well, one thing that we did want to acknowledge, because we talked to you about this ahead of time, we're recording this on June 8th of 2023. The story just broke a few days ago. We're releasing this episode on the 23rd, which is 15 days from now, or 24th, excuse me, 15 days from now. A lot could happen in the next 15 days. Uh, so we we did want to acknowledge that. We wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. You, we know what it's like to do these things back to back all day long. We frequently are talking to folks that are doing that. So we, we really appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jenny Chang, co-founder of the Geek Subscription Box for Women Fan Mail. You're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. Okay, so thanks again to Ralph for spending so much time with us. As we said, we actually recorded that a little over two weeks ago, right after the story broke. We knew there might be some additional developments before this episode released, and we wanted to add a little more context to the big picture. So we asked Micah Hanks, the editor-in-chief at The Debrief, as well as Chrissy Newton, media relations and podcast host there, to join us. Yeah, we felt it would be a good idea to get even more background on how the story first came to light on the debrief and discuss new developments that might have come forth in the ensuing days. So for folks that don't know, Micah Hanks is a writer, podcaster, creator, and co-founder of The Debrief, and also a really awesome guitar player. <laughs> he covers science, technology, and futurism, and if you've been listening to our show for a while, you'll know him as a frequent guest of ours as well. And Chrissy Newton owns Vocab Communications, where she is an award-winning PR professional. She also co-hosts a podcast called Alt.Pop.Repeat about counterculture, subculture, and pop culture trends and movements. In addition to all of that, she produces and hosts an official debrief podcast called Rebelliously Curious with Chrissy Newton, where she covers tech, science, defense, and UFOs. You can also find that show on the debrief YouTube channel and website, and you can sometimes find her co-hosting the Somewhere in the Skies podcast, along with our friend and also debrief contributor Ryan Sprague. I suddenly feel not that accomplished. Okay, Sarah, <laughs> let's roll our discussion, if you will, with Micah and Chrissy. 
All right, folks. So that was our interview with Ralph Blumenthal, which was a real get for us. And um, the reason that we were able to make that happen is because we were able to reach out to an old friend of ours, Micah Hanks, who's been on the show a bunch of times. And Micah is now going to be joining us. And then we are also going to be joined by Chrissy Newton, both of whom are from the debrief.org, which broke this story. Chrissy, Micah, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to see you. Folks that have been listening to Astonishing Legends for a while will, of course, remember Micah from being on frequently, including our Christmas specials and even playing the guitar. And Sasquatch, of course. Yes, that's right. And he is uh, (laughs) one of the uh, co-founders of the Debrief. And we also have joining us Chrissy here, who is the media director at the Debrief. Chrissy Newton has been in podcasting a long time. She's also a video journalist, media expert, and contributor there. And she has her own public relations and communications company, Vocab Communications. On top of that, she hosts one of the Debrief's official podcasts, Rebelliously Curious, which is the show we heard the 45-minute definitive interview with Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane about the Dave Brush story that we, too, just spoke to Ralph about. So we'll have a link to that show in the show notes. It's a great show. You guys should check it out and subscribe. And then, of course, Micah has his own show, Micah Hank Show, among many other ones. We'll have links to all of those, but that's another great show. So anyway, it is so great to have you guys on. One of the reasons that we wanted to do this was because, Micah, we remember when you were talking about a new project that you were trying to get off the ground and you were debating, I think, how much you really wanted to do it and how intense it was. And here we are not so long after you got it started and you guys had an amazing story break with this story with Ralph and Leslie. It blew the doors off the internet, it seems like. Well, certainly. I mean, with all the developments really that have been occurring since 2017, and again, leading the charge with that in the New York Times, Ralph Blumenthal, a 40-year veteran of that newspaper, and of course, you know, investigative reporter Leslie Kane, and also significantly the Pentagon correspondent to the New York Times, uh, Helene Cooper, the three of them with this tremendous article in 2017 really fundamentally reshaped the way that we've been talking about the UAP issue. In fact, prior to that, they were still known as UFOs. Yeah. It became evident to me that at some point for that dialogue to continue, there would need to be independent publications that were willing to cover this story, sometimes in ways and at times that the mainstream media would not. I probably had not anticipated that at some point those two authors having fired that shot heard around the world would, you know, come Mm. to independent journalists like Chrissy and I and our colleagues there at the debrief with a similar story that in some measures, some even compare it not only to that 2017 story, but even say that this one may have further reaching and, and more important implications, although there's so much that still is yet to be determined about all this. But I mean, for the here and now, it's been quite a wild ride for the last few days. And again, I speak on behalf of Chrissy and our entire team to say that we're very proud of having played a small part in this, but I mean, this is really just the beginning and it's a small step toward wherever this all leads us. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting about it. And one of the things that is made clear by uh, Ralph and Leslie in your interview with them, Chrissy, was that, you know, because everybody's like, well, okay, well, he was with the New York Times. Why didn't they pick this up? And what was going on with the Washington Post, which he he explained pretty well on your interview. And he got into that some in ours as well, which uh, people just heard. The Times had passed on it and the Post was just, they were taking maybe a little too long to vet it and they were concerned about Grush's safety because he was about to be outed, essentially revealed, or his name was about to come into the public. So then they came to you guys. And I know that you've done some pieces on this at the debrief, but what went into your vetting process in terms of making sure that you could stand behind publishing this story? 
Certainly, yeah, I can speak to that briefly. I, you know, when the story first came to us, there was still some discussion about this possibly going to a larger publication. And naturally, I mean, I see this as being a topic, and I think, again, Chrissy and I and, and our entire team would agree on this point. This is a subject that's bigger than us. I'm not talking about just the debrief. I'm talking about like people in general. Yeah. The implications could potentially be huge. And again, there's still a lot that has yet to be waded through. We got to see what the results of this inspector general investigation within the intelligence community yields. Uh, but all of that said, this story, you know, again, I think that it's major mainstream media news and it certainly ended up being that. But in small part, I think, due to us helping to kind of get that ball rolling. Now, that said, uh, when the story was brought to our attention and uh, I first read it, you know, Leslie contacted me. Uh, I was very impressed with some of the information because it wasn't what I expected. Uh, I didn't expect there to be several individuals who had gone on record. But of course, I told them right up front, I said, before we agree to publish anything, we've got to independently vet all these people. And really, as opposed to going through every step of that, I'll point to a three-part series of articles that are actually an interview between Chris Plain and Tim McMillan, one of our co-founders, where they go into depth about that, which I thought was a very smart thing to do in terms of how we presented this story, because rather than just putting the story out, we also offered this three-part interview series that gives a pretty in-depth background about all of the vetting. But safe it to say, in short order for the con you know context of this conversation, we were able to speak to people who knew Grush. We were able to independently vet the sources that were involved in this article. We were able to also get additional information from staffers in Washington who had knowledge of this IG complaint. Once all that was verified, and of course, we were comfortable moving forward with all of that, then of course, it's just a matter of getting everything together, logistics, formatting, you know, getting the article edited, loaded and ready to fire on Monday morning. It was a tremendous effort, but we were able to get that going. And again, I think that the results are interesting because within just a couple of days, we're seeing news of like Virgin Galactic stocks, you know, shifting. Of course, you know, Chrissy was sending news stories and stuff, and we're seeing congressmen and women saying now we're possibly looking at the potential of more hearings that may result from all this. So again, as journalists, what we have to try and do is we have to ask hard questions. We have to, you know, thoroughly vet sources, but we also hope ultimately once a story goes out, not just to, you know, say, hey, cool, we were the people who did that. No, we want to be able to see action taken. And we always hope that there's going to be a further effort to try and get to a better understanding of the dynamics underlying all this, which maybe only Congress, scientists, you know, the academic community, and those in government, you know, within the defense establishment can also do. So I, I do think that there have been some movement in that direction in recent days that is promising. Much remains to be seen, but I'm glad to see especially that, uh, you know, there's some discussion about additional hearings. Yeah, and I think we did something really different compared to the mainstream media, you know, with an article first that comes out from two contributors that have never, ever contributed to, well, minus Ralph, actually, Ralph has before, but Leslie hasn't. So having these two generally new contributors together that have been really well known within the mainstream and breaking these major stories with the New York Times come and work with us. But then we do something what Micah said, we look to show how we vetted this and making a really comprehensive understanding for people. And then I jumped on the mic to even try to clarify it even more for people to understand how Ralph and Leslie got to the point that they did for reporting. And we don't see that in the mainstream media. I think it's really important to note that because we're a small team, but we worked really well together in that space to get things out and to clarify so that when people had questions, what does this mean? What does this mean to them? What does this mean to culture? What does this mean going forward? 
So we could help understand that maybe this isn't a disinformation campaign. This is something bigger than that and bigger than us and them. So I think we did something and maybe we'll, that will pave a way hopefully in the future for other people doing reporting. Yeah, last point, I'll just add on that also, pinging off of what uh, Chrissy's saying. Uh, there was an excellent interview recently that uh, Ezra Klein of the New York Times did with Leslie Kane as a former, you know, contributor to the New York Times herself, uh, where he's sitting down and he's asking her a lot of hard questions about this. You know, I'm very proud to say that, I mean, within a couple of days of the article actually going up, Chrissy had done that from within the debrief. So, I mean, we where we've seen the media kind of take a, you know, different approaches from all different angles. We essentially kind of did everything that we've seen the broader scope of the mainstream kind of do collectively. We tried to do a small representation of all that within house, so to speak, you know, with Chrissy's interview, she's asking them, you know, okay, these other statements have come out. Can you clarify all this for us? We published the interviews with Tim. And of course we put the article out there that got the whole ball rolling. So it was a a really unique opportunity for us to take a a very holistic and comprehensive approach toward a story and in a way that really generally the mainstream media would not traditionally approach this. Yeah, nobody reports on the reporting. So, (laughs) Right. Well, uh, you guys have been very thorough. I think that that's been huge on this. Right. What's been some of the the major points of feedback, contention, criticism that you received since uh, publishing this? Chris, you want that one? (laughs) (laughs) Throw it on to me. One thing that people have is the vetting. It's just like, well, how do we know that this guy isn't being fed misinformation? Correct. How do we know who he, he says he is? Well, we don't know, but we look at those claims and we look at everything that's backed him, you know, which is pretty mm-hmm. solid. Him, who else has come forward on the record? So those claims are very solid. And, you know, this was just, as Micah said, just the beginning. And now we see, we kind of opened up Pandora's box in that way to see now giving other people and other journalists and other mainstream media, tossing them the baton and saying, now it's your turn to start telling this story with us potentially, if there's more there. And we'll report if there isn't something there too. That is our job. You know, non-biased journalism, right? We don't have a side we're picking. We're just telling the facts and the news that we know. So I would say that there's multiple different criticism. You're always going to get people and I just won't say his name that we all know and love and from UFO Twitter and everywhere else that will always generally be negative. So we know that that's going to happen. We know that red media, we call it in public relations, is just going to be there. It's more about looking to the mainstream media and seeing how they're reacting to somebody that's, you know, or to a group of people that are independent journalists and obviously giving us credit and not discrediting us as an media outlet, which is really wonderful, but maybe asking deeper questions too and trying to get to the facts. So I would say there's been a variation. We're always going to get criticism. You're never going to not get any, but I think generally what we would say in public relations, it's a balanced to positive response. For the most part, I think the media response to our reporting was pretty good. Yeah. And I really like that Chrissy points out that, you know, when it comes to reporting, very much like in science, you know, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, has said more than once during testimony provided to the Senate and in other public presentations that we're going to follow the data. As scientists, we have to follow the data and we can't be biased in determinations that are made. Same goes for us with the media. We have to follow this story anywhere it goes. And right. reporting on the story as it is initially you know, presented to the public, you know, right now it's a quickly developing situation. Who knows what a year from now or two years from now may also happen, you know, happen, who else may come forward, what additional facts, you know, what the result of the intelligence community inspector general report that was, or the rather the complaint that was filed and then the investigation that will follow, what the result of that may be. 
But again, as those developments happen, we will report on them. And very much like Dr. Kirk said with science, you know, we have to follow that wherever that goes. I was going to say, just go ahead and tell us who you're talking to. They've already called you, haven't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's because that's one of the great things about you guys breaking that story. And, and that's the thing that we always are waiting for, you know, after being around so many years. It's like, when do we start getting this, the really inside emails and the inside information? It's like, that's that must be something that's going to happen to you now. I think it's really interesting. And I think also, Chrissy, why don't you tell, uh, for our listeners that aren't familiar with with your show, I think it's important to have perspective on the kinds of things that you normally talk about. So what is the kind of material that you cover on Rebelliously Curious? It's not just about UFOs, right? Yeah, it's a spectrum of things and science, technology, futurism, and yes, UFOs. So it's looking, I guess, from, you know, we had Danny Sheehan that came on that was breaking down legislation and the UAP legislation that just happened recently. And what does that mean? So people have a better understanding of that. And there were so many questions in that because let's be honest, legislation jargon is not easy to read. So I had to call a whole bunch of other people just to educate myself first so I could educate other people and ask proper questions. And then on the other side, you know, I'm interviewing somebody from NASA about space farming, which is like now right. a, a love of mine. So I will always follow <laughs> that's cool. somebody that's doing space farming. I find it super interesting. And we would talk about that. We talk about China that's looking at, it did actually grow a plant for like, I believe a couple of days and ended up dying on the moon. So we talk about how they end up doing that. So it's a spectrum of all different things, but I wouldn't put UFOs in the space of, you know, paranormal now. I look at it right. as very different. That's why I classify it with us, with science and technology because we're moving that way. But it is out of all of the topics, for sure, it's more of the fringe, they would say. But I don't come at it as a paranormal conversation. I come at it as more, hopefully, if people listen, as more of an academic conversation. That's what I think it's important for people to understand. And that's true of the debrief in general from top to bottom. It's not just, oh, it's this paranormal thing. You guys are uh, covering a lot of science aspects and more legitimate aspects. You know, Forrest and I are uh, storytelling buffoons compared to you. So it's nice to, uh, we're entertainers. We're entertainers. Well, I, so, I was uh, inappropriately or, or misidentified as a journalist on, that's right. a, uh, on a cable show. So, on, <laughs> which is enough these days. If you just they get promised the right, us they uh, were going to put yeah, super. astonishing legends. They just wrote journalist. No, seriously, we wanted people to know that we try to present as as best we can. And it's something that I, I think you both said, when you go to relay this information, you want to make sure that, you know, the sources that you're pulling from are as accurate as can be. And we have to then trust that uh, Mr. Grush is doing the same thing. And that, you know, something that uh, Ralph said, Blumenthal, is that, well, you know, for something to be fed to him in some kind of conspiratorial plot is, it seems to be very unlikely that you'd have so many people and and pulling so many strings that suddenly this is now what comes out into media platforms and outlets like yours for some kind of orchestrated purpose that hasn't been happening already and it's like as Ralph said nobody knew that he was going to do this you know only only Dave Grush knew that he was going to do this at this time so question for both of you where do you see this unfolding or, or how in the next steps in that now that the cat is out of the bag and that there apparently appears to be more information on the way, do you see, again, a slow trickle, drinking from the fire hose, as they say, or or long period of silence while people kind of gather their thoughts? I mean, it's no surprise that this came out after the passage of the 2023 National Defense Intelligence, uh, or rather the National Defense Authorization Act. That bill, of course, had this whistleblower provision in it. 
And the idea that people would start coming forward after there had been legislation passed that would offer protections for them, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. But I always try to bring this back to history. And for me, I think an important point that should be made is that if we look at the long history of this subject, and there are a lot of people who are fairly new to this and who don't just look at the history of UFOs. I mean, they primarily just look at the history since 2017, what happened in the New York Times and, you know, everything that followed thereafter. I think it's really important to understand that in the broader scope of the history of this topic, for years we've been hearing about things like this. I mean, an excellent book that was written back in the 19, uh, I guess, early 80s by Barry Greenwood and Lawrence Fawcett, Clear Intent, later republished under the title The UFO Cover-Up. It was the first significant book that really relied on the Freedom of Information Act to be able to obtain information about UFOs and what the government and also intelligence community in particular had been acquiring about this. And you see references to all this sort of stuff. It's been something that's prevalent. These sorts of themes, things that Grush was saying the other day, are things we've been seeing for decades. So for my own part, that alone doesn't confirm his claims. But it does mean to me that if it's eventually proven, I don't know that I'll necessarily be all that surprised. The thing that will be more surprising to me is that it was actually kept secret for so long. But, I mean, these trickles of, of you know, whispers, rumors, things about this that really are very similar, we've been hearing about them for decades. And the other point I'll make just to your main question there, Forrest, I mean, what comes next? Really, it's the result of the investigation by the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And I want to emphasize that again. That's what makes this story, to me, truly unique. Yes, the claims that Grush has made are potentially groundbreaking. If true, we've got to wait and see. And there's also that frustrating possibility we may, we may, ever, uh, we may never know. But the fact that this was put into the context of an inspector general complaint, again, Grush stands to lose far more than he stands to gain. If he is found of making uh, guilty of making false statements in part of that IG complaint, I mean, he could be charged criminally. So with criminal charges pending, I mean, he doesn't stand to gain a whole lot from lying. And one has to ask, therefore, I mean, why else would you say this? And I think that's one of the reasons significantly why Mick West, uh, among others, have said, look, I think he believes what he is saying. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. what he is saying may not be accurate. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I think, again, as a skeptic, Mick, of course, is going to say that, maybe to an extent feels obligated to say that those claims are probably inaccurate. But Mick West, it's no small statement for him to say, I think this guy believes what he's saying. He'd have to for there to be the IG complaint associated with this. So I think that's the immediate next step. And I'll, you know, abstain now from further dialogue and allow Chrissy to chime in. Well, Chrissy, before you you answer with your your perspective, I also wanted to add on to that to talk a little bit about uh, the Canadian perspective, about how the Canadian government might go forward and the Canadian media and the populace, how they're going to react to this. Yeah, I echo things that Mike is saying as well. A, eh? uh, sorry, <laughs> I, I had to. I will just play the devil's advocate on that side is saying we've seen disinformation campaigns that have happened yeah. right in the past and, and sure. history will tell us that. So we have to be mindful of those things. And we look at you know, gosh, from Richard Doty doing one, if we don't know if he acted alone, but the CIA or was told to. So there's tons of things. We've also seen things that happen with the condom report too. So I think that that's something that we have to be mindful of and people need to know that is in history, but it doesn't mean that it's happening again, right? That's something we have to look at. And this is very different. This is a different conversation going forward than we've ever had. I think it's a bigger conversation. It's always, obviously a bigger mainstream conversation too, because of social media and mainstream media picking it up. But 
I think the biggest part too, we'll see what whistleblowers come forward in the next little bit, what they're going to say. And then also being mindful that we're going to have people that will come forward and potentially lie too. So we have people that are probably telling the truth and people lying. So this is going to be, let's figure out if we're all lie detectors and doing the best at it. And, and to be honest, the one thing I do love about the UFO topic is that there is this type of understanding or governing where people will play with the topic and play with the ideas and contribute to it to find truth and transparency. So let alone civilians will do that, which I think is really great. And we have to be mindful. And I think NASA knows that and will be contributing to some form of open database. Hopefully we'll, we all can see, and it's not privatized, where we can be able to look at this together, you know, as maybe both countries. And now for a Canadian perspective, mm-hmm. it's interesting because I would say we're reluctant right now. In the 1950s, we had Project Magnet and Project Second Story that were two of UFO projects, investigation projects, similar to like Project Blue Book that we had. And a lot of people don't know that. We worked very closely with Americans uh, during the 1950s and 1960s investigating UFOs. We also did a ton of academic research. The University of Toronto did a lot of it. You know, thankfully they did. And they looked into it from a scientific perspective, which I think is wonderful. Uh, And we were one of the first countries to do that uh, outside of the States. So right now we're reluctantly back in on it for the fact that Americans have, the United States has really put a spotlight back on it. So we have to, right? Part of NORAD, part of the Five Eyes Alliance, we have to play our part. And it's our, now, for example, myself and a whole bunch of other people that talk about this topic are trying to champion the topic so that we have larger conversations. Daniel Otis is an amazing journalist from CTV that's having these larger national conversations. He is our new Chris Wachowski. Chris Wachowski still talks about, he's our media guy, but he talks about UFOs, but forever he was collecting all the Uh, documents from Transportation Canada. He was like Mm. the one that had all the UFO information, which is like so Canadian. We give it to one guy, you know, (laughs) to do, which I laughed, is like in Manitoba. And I love Chris. I think he's he's fabulous. So now it's taken back into the Canadian hands, into the government, which might not be good, to be honest. We don't know how transparent Mm. they're going to be. But they recently did release a project called Project Sky Canada, where they're looking at observing this and not talking about proving extra terrestrials or anything else. They're just looking at this from a perspective the same way as the Americans are and just hopefully finding some answers. But we're slowly moving that way and we'll see what happens. And obviously now we have Larry McGuire, our MP, who's been championing the topic and coming forward. So I'd like to see what he knows. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Shree Cardoza. Now back to the show. Here in America, you know, there's the the cloud of silliness around it and the story comes on and they play the X-Files theme as Forrest and I always talk about or joke about it. Like, is there that same vibe there? It's like a little bit of eye rolling about it or is it taken a little more seriously in Canada? It's so funny you say that because I, listening to mainstream media, radio's done that, but I have not seen television really do it. Mm, Most of the time, if someone's asked me to do an interview on mainstream radio, they've asked me and have been like, so tell me everything you know about UFOs in like two minutes. And I'm like, that's (laughs) impossible. (laughs) You know, that's the kind of stuff, the ignorance level is really high. And let's be honest, it probably should be to some degree. They're just a lot of people that are getting into this topic are just learning. So, 
to have somebody that can say, well, let's talk about a specific thing rather than like all of UFO history, because I'm not the expert in that. Micah Hanks says I'm learning as I go as well. And I learn something new every day. So that's it. But yeah, it's not campy. I know in the in the States, it's way more campier than it yeah. is in Canada. Yeah. But we don't really talk about it that much. We're just slowly starting to talk about it. And there's like one journalist, which is Daniel Otis doing that right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and Daniel, unfortunately, had even mentioned a while back, I mean, he had, maybe as a part of a FOIA release, there had been this complaint by one of the FOIA officers saying, you know, every time we get a request from this individual, it just shuts down our entire department, and we can't get our actual job done because of these UFO requests. And, you know, Daniel had, of course, put this out online and said, is this how our government feels about we as citizens, Canadian citizens, I'm not a Canadian citizen, of course, but I mean, speaking on behalf of them, Daniel Otis saying, you know, Canadian citizens do have a right to know what our government is collecting about this. And they're complaining about having to honor FOIA requests. And it was obvious who the reporter was who filed them, because again, like Chrissy said, Daniel's really been leading the charge there. He and right. she, in fact, we, we have a little of that going on down here in the United States, too with some questions and concerns about the level of transparency. So whether it's Canadians getting into the game or it's Canada feeling dragged into it as a result of the U.S. action, you know, the bottom line is this. We have a unique historical relationship, our two countries. We share a border and also our aerospace defense through NORAD. And the significance of that going back to the Cold War, of course, Canada being a potential channel through which the Soviets could travel and reach North America, it was in our best interest for our two countries. I mean, more than any other two to have an important alliance. And really, even in the modern era, no matter what the potential challenges are in our aerospace, these two countries need to be able to continue to work harmoniously in that regard. Yeah, and we're seeing people, which is really interesting on our end, we're seeing if it's either people that are MPs or we're looking at former Minister of Defense Paul Hilliard years ago coming forward and talking about it. So we're getting political leaders actually discussing this way before the states did. And so, you know, Larry McGuire right now is championing not similar, um, I would say, ideas of Paul Helliard, but close enough, right? He'd have his own. He's Paul has done multiple things and contributed in multiple ways to the topic, but Larry McGuire is echoing certain things that are similar. So it's nice to see. And hopefully I've been trying to contact Larry to get him on a podcast. So, and I do chat with him at some times uh, via email. So we'll see, maybe at one point he will, and we'll have a great Canadian conversation. <laughs> Let us know if that happens. We'll make sure and listen to that. Let's move to the the story itself here a little bit and what has happened. As we said in our talk with Ralph, we actually talked to him almost two weeks ago. And thanks to you guys for helping out with the immediacy of that. But what would you say are the most significant new developments in like the past two weeks since Grush's story was first released? Well, of course, there's been the controversy. That's just the nature of the beast when it comes to a story like this. It's going to be controversial. I'm actually amazed at how, I mean, I would consider most of the response to be fairly positive. I mean, the UFO community, there's always going to be a lot of, you know, infighting and stuff like that. But two really significant points are the level of mainstream media response to this story. They were quite receptive to it. And I think that, you know, amidst all the varying opinions, that it was a fairly balanced treatment in some total. The story's been treated fairly. I mean, it's been a recipient of some skepticism. There have been those who have lauded and praised it. There have been those who have simply put it out there and just said, okay, you know, here's what the story is. Here's what we know about it, the individuals involved, you know, the claims made by the principal whistleblower. I, I'm actually pleased to see that there has been 
that level of of diversity and balance in the dialogue. I think that's a very positive thing for the sum total of the topic, given that it was once relegated to the so-called water cooler. But in terms of the most significant developments, again, that comes back to the potential for congressional hearings, in my view, because at this point, what is going to be of vital importance, if indeed we are to really get to the bottom of to what extent the United States government may have been involved with this topic, unbeknownst to not only the American people and to you know elected officials, but also maybe to those within government who have been appointed to investigate this. More on that in a moment. I mean, it's going to be really up to Congress to push for this. And we've already seen that in recent years. I mean, in the 2022 NDAA, we had, of course, the Gillibrand Amendment, which essentially directed the DOD to form the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office and expand the scope of what it did. We had the Whistleblower Amendment that followed up in the language of this year's bill, and now there is discussion. Douglas Dean Johnson, by the way, also having just recently written about this at his website, that now there is language apparently being drafted potentially for the next National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2024 that may indeed look at some of the core claims that have arisen in recent days thanks to reporting presented by the debrief and other outlets. So that's been the most significant thing to me, congressional action, and that's going to be necessary. But I'm going to point something else out. You know, the official response also that came from the DOD about Russia's claims via spokeswoman Susan Goff had been that Arrow didn't have any knowledge of things like this. A significant point that should be made is that, again, during the Senate hearings held by uh, U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, where uh, testimony was provided by the sole witness, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Dr. Kirkpatrick pointed out, and this is, again, of vital importance, Arrow has not yet been granted Title 50 authority, okay? In other words, Arrow doesn't seem to have access to potentially the most significant information being collected by compartments or components within the agencies the intelligence community is comprised of, NSA, CIA, and what have you. When we go back to the like 1970s and 1980s, there was this upstart civilian uh, group called CAUSE, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, like the best name ever, right? (laughs) (laughs) This group of uh, researchers, one of them a former NSA employee himself, Todd Zeckel, They started using the Freedom of Information Act to file for information. They got information from the FBI. They got information from the CIA. They were stiff-armed by the NSA. The NSA argued that this information, you know, the public interest in UFOs is not greater than the necessity for protecting national security, and so we can't release what we have. A judge ruled in favor of the NSA on that. Many years later, though, when other researchers came back around and tried again to get access to that information, John Greenwald is a notable example. Of course. John was told, the NSA said, we have no documents related to this. And so John, and again, this is an important question he asked. He's like, well, what happened to those documents that were denied to cause back in the early 1980s? Have they gone missing? Were they moved someplace? Presumably, that's some of the information that Arrow doesn't have access to without Title 50 authority. One wonders if the UAP task force had access to that. And again, right. when Grush is saying within his you know, work with the UAP task force, put him in touch with people who told him about programs beyond the scope of what the task force was involved with. Again, that does to an extent, I think, match basically those historical instances where people have been un- unable to get information from top intelligence agencies, 
Dr. Kirkpatrick and others have said that they haven't been able to get access to that. So one has to ask, you know, what does the government actually possess? What knowledge do they actually have about this? At what point will the DOD's UAP investigative group be given access to information about the phenomenon it's been tasked to investigate by Congress? So I hope, indeed, if anything else comes out of this, it involves congressional action and they will continue to push on these issues. But if all the information remains classified, uh, we may, as, as a populace, may just wind up still in the dark all the way through the entire process. Yeah. Or we're going to be really old when it's released. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, along with the JFK files, apparently. I'll get them come out at the same time. Well, yeah. Still waiting on the, you know, some of the JFK yeah. files to be cleared for release. And it's like, yeah. folks, I mean, more than half a century later, really, how grave a concern to national security more than half a century later is that? What exactly is of such importance that it has to be withheld from the public. Great point. That yeah. They're waiting for everybody to be gone until they do that so they can have their own conversation and their own dialogue. But it, I think this always happens. We see this. No matter what, it, it's going to take a very long time for things to be released, but it doesn't mean that other people won't come forward and hopefully yeah. you know, give it some momentum. But I think it's going to take a while. Micah was talking about philosophically, how do we approach this as... Uh, receivers as human beings of this information. And I see it uh, as one, there's objects. So there's physical objects. Well, we can kind of wrap our heads around that. And I see this connected to what's been released or what you say that, uh, you know, APRO has been, uh, you know, is investigating. And you have a respectable scientist like Dr. Avi Loeb and and John Kirkpatrick taking this seriously. It's like, well, we have some video. It's a weird, uh, dull, shiny object that's flying over Baghdad. And that exists. We're saying that we don't know what that is. We don't think it's ours. And on that very simple level, it's like, okay, it's a metal ball floating in space and time that we have pictures of. That's easy for people to wrap their heads around a little bit. It's like, because then you can extrapolate, well, maybe it's just foreign tech. Maybe it's just top secret US ordinance that we just don't know about, but it's not off planet. It's just top secret. The second layer is then, and I guess this is where it kind of gets salty is that, and prickly, is that now you're saying, as Dave Grush has, is that not only are there objects, but of course, somebody built those. And we have evidence of maybe a pilot that was flying one of these things. That's another level that's harder to accept. But, you know, that's the necessary logical step. It's like, well, if we didn't build it, who did? Well, these things did. And we have one on ice or or in and suspended animation or just playing cards somewhere in, at, at area 51 in some conference room the third level is uh, okay so if you can wrap your head around that and accept that then the the third level of uh, hard to acceptness is abduction theory and mm-hmm. people saying well not only are they here but a lot of them aren't nice and they're messing with us and a few of us have been killed as humans by them. And that's the hardest thing to accept, I think, and wrap your head around. And we see it, too, is people want to talk about UFOs, and they're okay with the objects. They're not okay with the beings, and they're really not okay with them messing with us. You know, what I see here uh, that was talked about is that, as in the interview with Grush and uh, Ross Coulthard, it's like nuclear technology. There's no secret that we we have it, and several other countries do. But we're not going to tell you how to build a bomb. But knowing that we have that, that, like that, that cat's out of the bag, right? Everybody knows that. But the major step here, which is mind-blowing and world-changing enough, is just to know that 
these things are real and they exist. And it's like, okay, you know, nobody wants to say where they're from or who made them yet. And maybe we don't know that, but that they exist. We're not the only things in our solar system or our universe. And that's mind blowing, but we don't need to know the tech. So I see it as this kind of um, that being released. Uh, people were like, why the government released that? That's you know top secret knowledge. It's like, well, they're not telling you what they have or what technology they were able to reverse engineer. They're just saying the first thing is like, yeah, they exist. And uh, we're not going to say, though, what we've been able to glean from that technology wise. We're going to hold that secret. Like, OK, that part's fine. That's national security level. But at least tell us if these things are real. Does any of that make sense? Like, do you see that that alone, statement alone is earth shattering? I agree with you on that. I think the cultural perspectives of that and how people view this in their lives is my concern for me, has always been a concern for me. And I will always have that because I think that that's how people identify with themselves, identify with others, and how do they feel that they're actually seen in this world, right? And how do they move in this space? And what does that mean to everything that they believed in? And what does that mean to everything that they think they know or what they will believe going forward? We live in a world that is filled with a lot of lying right now. And we use tag words and people hate to use them, but they are true. We live in a world where people say gaslighting, uh, narcissistic stuff. Like we are living in that space right now. That is 2020, 23. Those are the buzzwords, the tag words. So this kind of overlays with multiple questions of people's mental health when they feel that, will they even accept it and just move on? I always say, I'm like, why am I going to work? Like, <laughs> it's like I always say it. I'm like, uh, I'm like, why do I go to work every day then? If that's if this is all exactly true, then I don't want to work. I'm just gonna go live at the beach and probably podcast right. from there and have a fabulous yeah. life. And you know, and, and why am I not doing that now? Right? That's what I ask myself too. Uh, <laughs> right? But then I look at you know for our reporting, the one thing we should you know make clear too, is we didn't put those claims forward. The claims that we put forward were just from what we knew based on intelligent officials and what we could verify as that story. You know, Ross had a larger story that has gone forward Mm -hmm. and that will play its own way. And at some point it has to be acknowledged by the U.S. government. I don't know when that will be, but I do. I have those concerns and you know, everyone has a say from the experiencer to the government official to you name it, but we're living in the beginning of all of this. And I think we have to recognize it and then find ways where potentially if more stuff does come out, then we're going to need other not-for-profits, whatever, psychologists, Lots, lots of people coming into this conversation and looking at it and taking care of people and their mental health and everything else in a very positive way, because I think it's important. And then how do you adjust, right? And we'll see, we just have to wait for the government to catch up because a lot of people won't believe it or won't believe any of the claims until there is confirmation and full evidence and proof that they can actually see, touch, or that they can read for themselves. So we're waiting for that. And I think we wait for that to happen before anybody makes any drastic moves uh, or believes anything at this point. I think you just have to wait for that to slowly happen. And I'll only add, of course, you know, building on Forrest's uh, position there uh, that, yeah, you know, I mean, it seems almost like it's kind of been an open secret. And it really has. Again, I go back not to things Grush has said or anything like that. But I mean, to those FOIA requests from back in the 80s, when calls had been filing these requests and the NSA acknowledged then, whether they do now, that they had information about this. But again, if you know 
Well, my friend George Howard would always say, and many have, in fact, past is prologue. If you know your past, you have a better idea about what may be happening in the world around you right now. And again, when we look to the 1980s and those FOIA requests, gives us a pretty good idea of the kinds of stuff that in likelihood is not being supplied to the current efforts within the DOD, i.e. Arrow, in their investigations. But another point I want to make now, kind of, you know, springing off of, you know, Christy's response there, I often wonder about things like, if there are technologies, who are the operators? What does this mean? It was really interesting to me that Mr. Grush doesn't say, yeah, we have extraterrestrials. You know, he's very careful about saying, well, they're non-human, and we don't ascribe provenance to it because we really aren't sure where they're from, which is kind of an interesting way of framing this rather than saying yeah. equivocally, you know, aliens are visiting. You know, he's saying in his core claims about these alleged recoveries of non-human craft that we simply don't know where they're from, but that they aren't ours. I find that really interesting. But I mean, again, I look all the way back to the 1950s with this study of UAP or UFOs as they were known back then. In the early days, NICAP. I mean, they wouldn't touch humanoid encounters, you know, claims of sightings of of the occupants of UFOs. They wouldn't touch those with a 10-foot pole. And gradually over time, as civilian investigative groups began to get more and more sightings of occupants outside of the craft, 1964, we have Lonnie Zamora's sighting, of course, mm-hmm. in Socorro, New Mexico, 1959. In fact, we even had the one over Papua New Guinea where uh, William Booth Gill and several of the islanders observed these beings walking around on top of this disc-shaped craft with these beings walking around on top of the thing. And some of the islanders wave at the beings and the beings wave back at him and the other islanders. And so... I look at those early reports and I'm thinking, you know, it's really interesting that we have sightings of occupants. They're generally humanoid in appearance and, and, and you know, they, they behave a lot like humans. And as more of those sightings are made, people eventually kind of have to go, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe we do have to acknowledge that there are occupants. And then by the 1990s, it was full-blown abduction research. I mean, leading ufology. It might have gotten a little ahead of itself, honestly. I mean, and that with respect to those who claim to have been participants in those abductions, as well as the researchers like the late uh, Harvard psychiatrist, mm-hmm. John Mack, who really studied that in depth and others. But we seem to have kind of come full circle. We're back at this point where nobody wants to talk about claims of occupants. Look, we're only talking about the craft. We're only talking about the technology. Yeah. It would stand to reason if it's technological in origin that somebody built it. Whether or not the operators are here, You know, they could have built this stuff centuries ago and they could be autonomous probes that are now just hanging around Earth. We don't know. But it stands to reason that there would be some sort of a intelligence that had been initially at some point and may still be behind the operation of these technological devices of unknown origin. And so I would say it's not crazy to cautiously look at the claims of pilots as they've been phrased in recent days and maybe even to be thinking in terms of on down the road if there are occupants contact initiatives. You know, if these things are operating currently with impunity in our airspace and we want to mitigate potential challenges that arise from that, how do we do that? We're going to have to communicate. We're going to have to engage in dialogue. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that go through my mind. And I don't think it's crazy at this point to be looking more broadly at all those issues and how they relate to the UAP and study of it and also our relation to it as humans going forward. 
you know, one of the things that brings forward, and this is where obviously this is all speculative and it's not directly related to what was reported on the debrief, or it maybe it's a little bit related to what he said later down the road. And, you know, Leslie had made clear on your show, Chrissy, that she wanted to uh, get away from the talk of bodies. We didn't vet any of that. We're not going to talk about that. But when he's talking about that stuff and, and what you just said, Micah, which I think is fascinating, too, about, oh, these things could have been built a long time ago. And it's something that I've brought up on Astonishing Legends before is once you get past because a lot of people, I think whenever it, it's with any topic we cover, because we cover all kinds of stuff, they never move past the moment of like, that's not possible. I refuse to believe it. All they think about is, is it or is it possible? Once you get past that moment, you start to think about all the other implications. And that's when the really interesting conversations happen. So for example, if let's say the crafter here, we've we've captured them, we're reverse engineering, whatever. This has been a cover-up for 90 years. It's also related to the uh, the defense of the nation and competing political power in terms of, oh, well, we got this ship and it's invisible. And then China's like, well, we got this one and it can jump ahead uh, five days in time in three minutes or whatever. So there's there's all those different debates, but there's also like the presence of something like that. It seems almost impossible that the time that it was created or whoever created it or whatever created it is going to perfectly overlap with our development as humans or the development of Earth. So does that mean that it's arriving at a targeted time? It has some control over space and time. I can't remember where this came up. I don't even know if this was Grush, but just in the past couple of weeks, somebody was, was, he was, maybe it was him talking about someone who encountered a craft that was embedded in the ground and they went inside and it was like- It was he, a tortoise. It was massive inside. It was like a doctor. Yeah, hit. it was giant, yeah. like a football field. Yeah. That's it, right. And that's the thing, because Grush has been saying, well, maybe they're coming because he has a background in physics and he's talking about it. it could be coming from another dimension. And Dr. Travis Taylor made that claim actually on the radio. He was one of them. Oh, right. Yeah. I heard that interview that he made that claim that he, that it was, I, I'm not saying himself. I forget. He said right. that I think somebody walked into one of these objects. That's what yeah. it was. It was Dr. Taylor. So yeah. So that's the question for me. The question too, of like coming from another dimension, it's like, I feel like that's kind of like going through a black hole and the whole spaghettification thing. You don't really come back from that so we don't know i mean you're a spaghetti noodle right so how if you live in another dimension how do you visit here you could seems like you could send a machine like the terminator right who also has to <laughs> arrive naked for some reason oh, no, so then the next now. question <laughs> so the next question maybe you're sending a drone in and somehow it's going it's a machine that goes back and forth but a biological oh you know what here's the next thought whoever's sending it biologically can't exist in this plane so then maybe they engineer a biological creature well, yeah, that could be possible, yeah. but we don't, I and think Grush mentions it's that. It's a drone too. Doesn't Grush mention about space-time though, that the concept of space-time is not how we view it or how what we right. know, and there's multiple right. different dimensions, I believe, and I don't know if Grush maybe said it or not, or I'm taking from somebody mm -hmm. else, but there could yeah. be multiple elements or levels to space-time itself within space-time, right. so... I don't think right. we understand the physics whatsoever right now of any of that. I think we're getting there, but at some point we'll catch up to it. I think here's yeah. hoping like I always laugh at Dr. Michael Masters, you know, seeing yeah. him, he's like one of my favorite people. Mike introduced me to him when we were at a conference and he believes in the time travel theory, you know, or he follows that and writes about it. And I find it really interesting. You know, I don't know how much I lend to it, but I'm open-minded to all of it because like, let's be honest, none of us know what's going on. So right. let's be open-minded to everything with it. But yeah, I, I, I find the the whole concept of, of going into some kind of object and it being the size of a football field is unbelievable. And again, why do I work? And I want one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just add, uh, in addition to that, yeah. that, I mean, when we're talking about 
what the source of the phenomenon is, because I mean, to me, that's one of the most interesting things about all of this. I mean, a lot of it's interesting, but, you know, Grush and his hesitance to say extraterrestrial, we're just saying non-human for now. You know, it really kind of bespeaks the challenge that ufologists have dealt with for decades, trying to guess what this stuff might have been. I mean, you know, if we go back centuries, people who observed aerial phenomena said angels or, you know, these yeah. prodigies, these are signs or omens or portents. In the 1890s, they would have been airships that some intrepid builder had constructed on the sly. And he was landing in places and asking for water and for bluestone that would help him continue the operation of his clandestine vehicle. In the uh, early part of the last century, these were probably ghost planes. They were certainly had to be aircraft of some kind, since we now have those now. But we didn't know who was flying them. Foo Fighters during the Second World War, possibly some sort of new German technology. And then, of course, there was the suspicion during the 1950s that the Soviets had this technology. And as time goes on and the theories get stranger and stranger, is it extraterrestrial visitors? Well, it could be interdimensional visitors. Or maybe, as John Keel said, ultra-terrestrial visitors. Ultra you know, like Dr. Michael P. Masters, uh, Chrissy points out, you know, his extra-tempestrial hypothesis. Could these be time travelers from the future? Here's an idea. What if they're time travelers from the past? What if there was a significantly advanced civilization that at some point long ago reached, you know, the apex of their capabilities, invented time travel, and they traveled to the future, and we're encountering these denizens of the ancient universe from long ago. What if they're from outside the matrix, and this is what the operators look like when they interface with our reality, our simulation that we as humans operate within? I mean, any of these possibilities are technically still on the table. Some would say that good old-fashioned flesh-and-blood extraterrestrials seem more likely. But the bottom line is we just don't know. What about Tony's and the crypto-terrestrial idea? You know, something that could somehow have been hidden right here in our midst on Earth, yes. perhaps for eons. I'm yeah. open to all possibilities, and I am an advocate of none until further evidence presents itself. Right. I echo what Micah says. I also think that you were talking, Forrest, about humans being affected by them negatively. I think that's the conversation that we might actually have a lot more data on that through different government, uh, like from Project Blue Book to you name it, to government databases that have been researching UFOs and cataloging this. So I think the question is, we need to go there too and ask them, what information do you have about health effects, people being injured, contacts? Let's start there because we probably, I'm assuming this is just an assumption, but from what we've heard in the past, they probably have that. So let's go there and then work back. And also, why isn't it multiple actors? Why does it just have to be one? Right. And then I personally think, though, by the time I'm probably dead or maybe time traveling and coming back, that <laughs> I will, uh, I don't think I, we won't know. I think by the time we figure it out, it will be not even an idea of what we all thought it was. I think it'll be something totally else. I don't know if we're capable of understanding it yet. And yeah, that, I think that's a, another point there's a couple of things about that and one micah to your point is almost the more organic and simple they are then i for me it's the less likely they'll be here because that requires them to follow the same kinds of rules we do and we can't do interstellar travel yet so it's funny I go back to like the old the really old Star Trek. I was Trek just going like, to say that Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were doing such Stand a great job of yeah. envisioning these different types of aliens that, you know, that big thing of light that looked like a, a jello casserole or whatever <laughs> that would, yeah. 
float over the companion, the companion. Yeah. That's what it was. And then, um, so I, I don't know, it's just like all these different ideas about how these things are moving from wherever they're coming to here. And, and then this, it's something that Forrest and I have talked about on the show a lot. And this is, you know, a ufology thing. It, it tracks back to the Mothman and all these different sightings where people seem to see what they understand. When Woody Derenberger encountered Indrid Cold and saw his craft, it basically looked like a floating lantern and it had a big metal door that squeaked like a car door, which at the time car doors were squeaky and loud. So it's like, what's happening? What's being presented to us? It seems like there's some control over our perception, which makes it much more complicated. And then you get to the scarier side of that, especially if you listen to Grush talking about, you know, unfriendlies with this kind of technology. It's like, what kind of defense would we have against something that sophisticated if it chose to not be interested in us? Well, at least some level of defense, maybe, because, I mean, apparently we have acquired these things. They do crash. It seems maybe we've shot them down once or twice. <laughs> we might. Have yeah, if they crash, that's true. And that's I thought about that earlier today. If it crashes, because you get this, like you grow up on science fiction or whatever, and all the future stuff is perfect. It's like it does all this cool stuff. We're the ones that are crashing trying to chase it. But it seems like, no. But why not, though? Why do they have to be perfect? Why can't they be yeah. perfect, too? No, yeah, we're not Murphy's perfect. Law. So yeah, it doesn't, it's such like a human thing to be like, it's better than us. It's bigger than yeah, us. Exactly. But it's like, no, they yeah. probably make mistakes too. It doesn't mean they're human, but right. is there such a thing as for perfection? I don't even think that actually exists. And that introduces an element of comedy oh, to yeah. it all as well, by the way. It's like some alien, like making a mistake yeah. and, and crashing yeah. his ship. Right. Speaking of, of comedy and two points you just made, I've said this on, on the, the show before, we tend to think, and it's the because it's the easiest and also the safest, and it, it's the most reassuring to think about these things in the way that humans do, because that's all we can wrap our heads around. Even as uh, as Dave Grush said, harming humans or or doing things that are negative, it's like we don't know why because we don't think like they do. We always think that, that well, this doesn't make sense to us. Why would they do that? This has got to be false because that's how we think about it. We don't know their intentions. The comical element about being perfect, you know, again, if you believe people like Terry Lovelace, well, I guess also um, Betty and Barney Hill, when you talk about them uh, finishing up their operations, especially with humans and whatever they're going to do, one, they don't have the anesthesia downright or they just don't care. Also, it's like, well, we, we could put this mo you know, mumbo jumbo mo mojo over you. You're going to forget everything. That doesn't work. Totally. People still do have uh, recall these accounts. And again, maybe they just don't care. But also, the you know, the comical part is the clothes being put on. Betty Hill's dress was on backwards. Terry Lovelace says his uh, his socks were on sideways and the boots were untied. They're just like, yeah, good enough. Just throw the clothes on them. Or they weren't entirely back in the tent. It's just like, eh, just get them close to the tent. That's fine. And again, maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't understand why we would find that important. Or basically, they're just not perfect. And they screw up. And why wouldn't they crash? Like I said, it doesn't. Uh, our intention, our intention, is to think of them as if they're higher uh, beings than us. Then they have to be perfect because uh, we think so highly of ourselves. Perhaps. Why do they exist? Why isn't it simulation theory brought up more often? No, why are we not living in a simulation? Like, could we not? What do they say? Right. It's like fifty fifty percent that we possibly could be. So are all these all just projections? Like there is so many of them. Yeah, when you play The Sims, you can just turn on alien invasion 
Yeah. You know, hurricanes, well, the system, fires. Yeah, and the system can backfire, yeah. can it? You know, yeah. programming doesn't always work. Let's be honest. We know that with websites and everything else. Well, you know, a, a funny point, though, that should make, be made, I think, is that humans throughout time have often ascribed godlike characteristics or agency to things that we don't know the origins of or can't explain. Sometimes we do this to mundane phenomena. You know, the wind blows the leaves on the bush nearby and we Mm. think that there's a ghost or something, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that with respect to all the folks who may have seen ghosts or or whatever. I'm just saying, though, that it's a natural human tendency to ascribe agency to things. And whatever Mm -hmm. UFOs are, we have all these things that we project onto it. Interestingly, many modern skeptics would be among those who would say, well, in ancient times, people saw UFOs as being gods. And today there are these, you know, wide-eyed, hopeful, love and light types who essentially do the same thing. You know, UFOs are a replacement for God in their minds. Those same skeptics, though, would probably be the ones who have, in recent days, written op-eds saying, it's really curious that they can get all this way, that they can travel interstellar distances, and they're really good at crashing UFOs. There's a seemingly logical argument being made there. Whereas, in fact, I think the skeptics who are trying to say it's very unlikely that they'd travel all this way and that they'd crash so often. Anybody look at how hard it is to put a spacecraft in orbit around a distant planet, how hard it is to land a rover on a planet like Mars, and that one's like the nearest to us in, in, in our own little planetary neighborhood. I mean, these are not easy things to do, but we do it. Sometimes, though, despite all the successes we have, we also mess up, okay? The skeptic who would say it's impossible they would come all this way and crash their craft, they are ascribing godlike power themselves to the aliens they don't believe in and saying that it's impossible they would crash their craft. They would be too sophisticated. They would have incredible technology. They couldn't possibly crash. Look, (laughs) we do in likelihood, they do too if they exist. And if these are indeed ET, I don't know. Whatever they may be, they're probably fallible a lot like us. Imperfection points to, uh, to me, credibility rather than the other way around. What is absolutely perfect, that seems highly unlikely to me and uh, logically not very likely. And, uh, and again, if you're going to go to that stretch of something existing that you don't believe in at all, like I said, you're arguing. The logic <laughs> police. Uh, Scott and I always yeah. joke about and the, the comedy police. I think yeah. it's the... Uh, the logic police or that, you know, the Larry Sanders thing, the, yeah. the foam hat and a can, you're, you're arguing the logic of something you find ridiculous anyway. That doesn't make sense. But that's that's how we tend to do it. One last thing, that article that Scott was talking about, uh, at least the one that he sent us, was from the Daily Mail. And it is the lawyer, Daniel Sheehan, who had an interview with the Daily Mail, who was representing some of the whistleblowers. And I think one of them was David Grush. But that's where we were talking about different perspectives which match other things. And the way that we look at stuff on the uh, on the podcast, look, we don't go to the, the lengths to vet anything. We try not to. If we're going to present it, we're going to tell you that this is possibly spurious information. Take it as you will. Do your own vetting. But I like to make connections to other crazy things I've heard and then see if the ideas connect. One, again, being the uh, the interior of this craft, being much larger on the inside, uh, oh, that also is a yeah. you know part of folklore. Uh, was it Baba Yaga? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, not Baba Vanga. That's another uh, uh, Baba Yaga, the uh, the mythical grandmother witch of the woods. That's an idea that's been floated around again. So perhaps not new, and perhaps that's where people say that's what's in our psyche. Uh, of or perhaps she's a result of, or that. perhaps she was an alien. You know that she managed to figure out how to warp time and space and and, uh, and gravitational waves to make her her small one room hut, much larger on the inside. What I was going to say, the connection that just occurred to me, that's that 
pops up in that article that Scott told us was, um, and he has a uh, an excerpt here uh, with our good friend uh, Gletters in our in our group chat was that uh, the attorney told the Daily Mail that the supposed crash retrieval program insider said uh, a thirty foot saucer was partially embedded in the earth. They tried to hook it up to a bulldozer to pull it out. And it pulled out a shape like a pie slice, almost like it was a part of the way it was constructed. And when it came loose, a couple of feet, they stopped immediately. They didn't want to destroy the integrity of the machine. And then it goes on to say that a guy had to go into it. He got in there and it was as big as a football stadium. It was freaking him out and it started making him feel nauseous. And he was so disoriented because it was so gigantic inside. Now, the connection I want to make to that that concept is that, again, once we've got a puzzle piece that we know is solid and we can build upon that and start to you know, find the corners of the big waterfall picture that we're trying to construct of this jigsaw puzzle, and we have something solid, it's like it calls into question the veracity or possible uh, truth of other spurious things like the carrot report. Uh, it was at the Center for Advanced uh, Research and Extraterrestrial Technology I think the C-A-R-E-T, and that's been floated around since the 90s, is where did this come from? Have you covered that before, Micah? Yeah, I remember when those documents came out and the alleged photographs of these unusual yeah. UAP, these spindly-looking kind of... The, the things, and, yeah, basically the drones that were people were supposedly photographing. But what I was most fascinated with, and we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, is that they had bits of technology, pieces, and... Again, I, I didn't know what to believe. I still don't, if it's real or not. But I like the ideas as good sci-fi concepts. And then when you read about something like this, well, one of the ideas that was in the Carrot Report is that apparently one of the pieces of technology that they recovered from just such a thing as we're talking about now was like a dynamo. And they figured out how to turn it on. Once it turned on, all the pieces that they had that were recovered suddenly flew into place yeah. and constructed a partial <laughs> ship and the pieces that were missing were missing. Imagine, as I said before, like a broom handle that has a section in the middle cut out and you're missing the middle piece, but the straw part and the end of the handle come in place. And then I started wondering like, well, that's pretty, that's pretty clever. You know, that's a way of construction because what would you expect? Well, people would say, well, there's no wires. There's no nuts and screws and bolts. You know, there's no plexiglass. It's like, okay, now you're back to thinking in human terms. What's a smarter way of doing this? Well, you have a ship that's constructed maybe in like eight pie slices. You turn something on and zoop, it all comes together. It's airtight. It's intergalactic, uh, transmedium. That's a smarter, el more elegant way of thinking about this. And us saying like, well, that doesn't make sense. We would never build a ship like that. It's like, you're not, you're not thinking big enough. So that's just to say, once more of these ideas start to come out and you start to hear things from, from people like Dave Grush, and it's like, that's an interesting idea. And I also heard it with this other account from somebody else that everybody just passed off as being a wacko. Now, maybe that's not so crazy. Yeah. Well, I think we have to look at theories, though, too. It doesn't mean that basic elements of things that happen, you know, we have Newton's law, there's multiple. It doesn't mean that there's so many other theories. I talked to someone today about quantized inertia, and I was like, before I came here, and I'm like, my mind is like, it's like blown. And, and it's a fringe theory that they're looking to prove into practicality, but using something that's actually practiced as a quantum drive. And it's like a thruster. And they're putting that on a SpaceX mission coming up in October. And so to me, he took a basic, he took a theory that was fringe, but put it into practicality with practical elements. 
And I thought that was really interesting. And I said to him, I'm like, why don't we look at things like that? Because why can't things like a broom coming together and stuff be different than what we've looked in actual theories and how we view physics or anything else and look at those and then put them into practical use on just a general basic level. Because sometimes I think that's it. We don't, we don't look at theories, you know, and every scientist freaks out about fringe theories now, but we have to be open-minded to look at them and test them and be curious to see where they take us. And I think that's, you know, a, a big motto of what we talk about in the debrief. We always laugh, we call it mad science right. or something like that, or people love to call it pseudoscience, but it's not, it's still science. It's experimenting, it's learning yeah. and testing and being curious. Right. Which is how all developments and leaps forward are made. Exactly. Well, we want to thank you so much both for coming on the show. I'd like to give you this opportunity, Chrissy, if you want to, where can people find your podcast and get more of you if they're interested in following you? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, YouTube. Uh, It's the Debrief channel and the show is called Rebelliously Curious with Chrissy Newton. It's also on Rebelliously Curious with Chrissy Newton. There we go. It's also found on all podcasting streaming platforms and you can go to thedebrief.org or you can follow me on Twitter where you see at Chrissy Newton. All right. And Micah, anything you'd like to add there about your show and and the debrief? Well, certainly. And I also want to mention Chrissy's got her personal website, which I think is ChrissyNewton.com. Isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you got that as well. You can learn all about all her other wonderful podcasts because oh, cool. she does a lot of them. And of course, I'm kind of in the, in the same camp. I've got the Micah Hanks program, which, you know, I'm usually reporting on whatever's late breaking and happening right now with regard to the UAP issue. But I cover a lot of topics on there. And of course, archaeology enthusiasts have heard me talk on the Seven Ages Audio Journal. I'm really letting my good pal Jason kind of lead the charge on that show these days as I'm focusing more on the UAP thing. But again, all the podcasts and stuff that I do, you can find over there at micahanks.com. And yeah, like Chrissy said, you can follow our work and the teams work together there at thedebrief.org. Well, thanks again. Thanks for the amazing work. Congratulations on breaking that story. That's just absolutely monumental. Hope it's not the last big break for you guys. And please, uh, Keep us in the loop to the extent that you feel comfortable about all the secret phone calls and letters you're probably getting. And um, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And again, thank you for helping us get connected uh, with Ralph. We really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks, guys. Well, folks, that's the latest chapter in Disclosure. It's a polarizing topic for UAP enthusiasts worldwide, but these stories must be covered. Something else is bound to happen, and right now, we're thinking it will probably happen sooner than later. And when it does, we'll be back to talk about it. Until then. That's going to wrap up our show on the Dave Grush story. A very special thanks to Ralph Blumenthal, Micah Hanks, and Chrissy Newton. We're dark for the 4th of July holiday, so our next show will be on July 22nd. We'll be doing some extra junk drawer live on video shows at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends in the meanwhile, if you can't wait until then to hear us or see our made-for-radio faces. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Heather Olson. My name is Jenny Cheng. I'm Sheree Cardoza. Spelled J-E. I understand T-H-E-R. This is with no implied promise. Space. 
Compensation, O-H-L-S-O-N. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>